1: Woke up at 8, check your cardboard You're outside Gaggy pants with no label Learn from making the spice sauce Megadeth is absolutely my favorite band Get to the point Shave off your scalp
2: hello listeners and welcome to ohio mysteries you're listening to a clip of megadeth is absolutely my favorite band by youngstown rockers picnic day picnic day is our featured ohio musical artist tonight so hang out with us to the end of the podcast we'll tell you all about them and let you listen to that entire song But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Beacon Journal.
3: Hi, everybody. I got a UFO story, Steve. You know I'm loving it.
2: Oh, yes. I love UFO stories.
3: And I really like this one because it involves astronomy. Did you go through an astronomy phase?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think I'm still in that phase.
3: (laughs) It never gets old. I sure did. Actually, mine hit when I was an adult. I would go into the backyard with my star charts, and I would try to memorize constellations and look for obscure features in the night sky. To this day, if the night is clear and Pegasus is high, I can't resist stopping to look for the Andromeda galaxy and imagining a whole universe far from the Milky Way with its own suns and planets and wondering if we will ever find a way to get there or if they might find a way to reach us. Tonight's story is a case that absolutely captivated the country for a couple of decades, and it's considered the first allegation of a UFO abduction. A couple from New England said aliens took them on board their ship and examined them in 1961. Ever hear about aliens doing anal probes? This was the first. But 13 years later, in 1974, all eyes turned to a woman in Ohio who thought she had discovered a key to proving something that the abducted couple had claimed, and that Ohio woman became the center of a national debate on astronomy, extending the life of the story many more years. So let's go back to the beginning with this one. It begins with the story of Betty and Barney Hill. I'm not going to keep saying alleged or they said. Just take that for granted. I'm going to tell their story the way they believed it to have happened. In 1961, Barney and Betty lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He worked for the U.S. Postal Service She was a social worker. They were very active in their local Unitarian Church and the NAACP, and Barney sat on the local board of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Barney was black. Betty was white. The Hills were headed back from a vacation that they had taken to Niagara Falls in Montreal on September 19 of that year. And around 10.30 at night, they were just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire, on a rural stretch of road, when Betty saw a bright light moving in the sky. It was moving so erratically that she told Barney to pull over. They could use the brake anyway to walk their dog, Delcy. And so Barney stopped their 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air at a scenic picnic area just south of Twin Mountain. Betty pulled out some binoculars they had with them and got a closer look. It was an odd shaped craft with flashing multicolor lights. Barney saw it too, but figured it was a plane. That was until the craft suddenly descended and started heading in their direction without actually turning around. Betty and Barney quickly returned to their car and drove toward Franconia Notch. A narrow, mountainous stretch of road. They kept one eye on the craft that was still following them. At one point, it got so close, it filled the view outside their windshield, causing Barney to stop the car in the middle of the road. Betty thought it looked to be at least 40 feet long and rotating. Barney had a pistol with him and he put it in his pocket as he exited the car and moved closer toward the object. He also had those binoculars with him and this time when he looked, he could make out windows on the craft and more than half a dozen humanoid figures seeming to peer out directly at him. They seemed to be wearing glossy black uniforms and black caps. Barney said all but one of the figures moved away from the windows, and the one that remained seemed to telepathically communicate to him. Stay where you are. Keep looking. And then the craft moved closer to him. Well, screw that. Barney turned and ran back to the car, and a near hysterical state told Betty, they're going to capture us. He peeled away from the sight at high speed while Betty rolled the window down to keep track of the object. And then the Hills heard a rhythmic series of beeps that seemed to be bouncing off their car's trunk. And they felt a tingling sensation pass through their bodies. The very next moment, Barney and Betty Hill found themselves driving 35 miles from where that incident had happened. The only memory that they had of that stretch of road involved a fiery orb in the sky and a sudden roadblock. How could the two of them have traveled 35 miles and for the most part not have remembered it? The hills pulled into their driveway at dawn. Hours had passed that they couldn't account for. There were other things they couldn't explain. Their watches wouldn't work. The binocular strap was torn. The toes of Barney's best dress shoes were scuffed. And there were small, shiny, concentric circles on the car's trunk. They also had impulses they couldn't help. Betty insisted their luggage be kept near the back door. She didn't want it in the house. Barney felt compelled to go into the bathroom and check his genitals. Everything was okay there. They also took long showers, feeling the need to wash away an experience that they couldn't even remember. A couple of days later, after they had settled down, Betty decided to report their encounter with the UFO to the Pease Air Force Base. She didn't want to sound eccentric, so she left out Barney's experience seeing those humanoid figures in the window. After a lengthy telephone interview, Major Paul Henderson concluded they had just seen the planet Jupiter. Then he forwarded his report to Project Blue Book, the U.S. Air Force's UFO research project, which was headquartered in Dayton, Ohio. Betty continued to take the lead on trying to investigate what might have happened to them. And at one point, the Hills gave a six-hour interview with Walter Webb. He was a, an astronomer from Boston who was also a member of a civilian UFO research group. They told him about those figures aboard the craft. The Hills were convinced they had a mental block because there were things they didn't want to remember or that those figures aboard the craft didn't want them to remember. But 10 days after the incident, Betty's blocked memories started to wiggle free. She had a series of vivid dreams. In one dream, she and Barney encountered a roadblock and men surrounded their car. Two of them led her into the forest. Others walked with Barney behind her. The men were about five feet tall and wore matching blue uniforms and blue caps. They appeared almost human, with black hair, dark eyes, and prominent noses, but their lips were blue, and their skin had a gray tone. In the dreams, Betty, Barney, and the men walked up a ramp into a disc-shaped craft of metallic appearance. Once inside, Barney and Betty were separated into different exam rooms. Betty was in a room with a figure she called the leader when a new man came in. She referred to him as the examiner. He was pleasant, and although these beings spoke to her in English, their command of the language was imperfect, and she didn't understand everything they were saying. The examiner explained to Betty that he wanted to understand the differences between her and his own people. He took a lock of her hair, examined her eyes, ears, mouth, teeth, throat, hands. He saved trimmings from her fingernails. After examining her legs and feet, the man used a dull knife, similar to a letter opener, to scrape some of her skin onto what resembled cellophane. He also thrust a needle into her navel, which caused her agonizing pain, but then the man she referred to as the leader waved his hand in front of her eyes, and the pain vanished. After the examiner left the room, Betty was talking to the leader and asked him where they came from. He produced a three-dimensional map of stars. In this dream, Betty and Barney were being escorted out of the ship when an apparent disagreement broke out among their abductors, then the leader turned to Betty and told her they needed to erase their memories. Betty said, you can try. No matter what you do, I'm going to find a way to remember. Then Betty and Barney were taken to their cars and watched the craft fly away. They began driving again, although their minds were dulled and the memory of the vent was fading Barney did not have any dreams. He didn't remember any of this. He even called Betty's dreams nonsense. But he did have those missing hours he couldn't explain. And he joined Betty in frequent return trips to where they had spotted that UFO in the hopes that it would spark more memories. Now, even though Barney couldn't remember what happened, it was causing a lot of anxiety it was affecting him mentally, even physically, as he developed an ulcer. He went to a physician who recommended a psychiatrist. And so more than two years after the incident, in January of 1964, Barney started going to a psychiatrist in Boston. His name was Benjamin Simon. Simon sometimes used hypnosis to treat his patients, and he agreed to put both Barney and Betty under hypnosis, to help them deal with their anxiety. The sessions continued for the next six months. The couple treated separately from each other, so they couldn't overhear each other. And over that six months, a startling memory began to emerge. For Barney, it was emotional. Under hypnosis, he recalled the night when they saw the UFO After he spotted the figures in the saucer, he said he ran back to the car and started driving again, but was compelled to pull off the road and drive into the woods. Six figures were waiting. The car stalled and the men approached. They told Barney not to be afraid, but he couldn't help it. He was. He said he kept his eyes closed for most of the walk to the spacecraft. They took him on board the disc-shaped craft and separated them. He was told to lay on a small exam table. Again, he kept his eyes closed for most of what came next. He recalled that a cup-like device was placed over his genitals. And although he didn't experience an orgasm, he thought that they had taken a sperm sample. They scraped his skin, peered in his ears and mouth. And he also recalled a thin tube or cylinder,
4: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
3: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. He also felt them exploring his spine as if they were counting his vertebrae. Barney said they communicated with him in broken English, but that he didn't think they were using their mouths. It seemed like they were inserting their thoughts into his mind. After they were taken back to the car, he watched the ship leave and they drove out of the woods. Betty's account under hypnosis was similar to the dreams she had with some differences. But something very significant came out of those sessions. Betty, under hypnosis, drew a copy of that three-dimensional star map that she said the leader had shown her when she asked where they came from. Her map consisted of 12 prominent stars connected by lines and three lesser ones that formed a distinctive triangle. Now, Simon, the hypnotist, did not believe in little gray men, but he did conclude that the couple believed what they were saying. Even Barney, whose conscious memories of the incident were never as vivid or clear as Betty's, came away from the sessions ready to accept that he and his wife had been abducted. The Hills went back to their regular lives. They openly talked about their experience with family and friends, but then a tape of their hypnosis sessions leaked out, and the story landed in the national news. Reluctantly, the Hills began sharing their story with a wider public audience. An author named John Fuller got their participation for a book he wrote in 1966 called The Interrupted Journey. The book included a copy of Betty's star map, the one she had sketched under hypnosis. And that star map is what is going to take us to the second chapter of this tale, turning a UFO abduction into an astronomy detective story and taking the spotlight to Ohio. Here's where enters Marjorie Eleanor Fish of Oak Harbor, a community not far from Port Clinton along a Lake Erie tributary in Ottawa County. Marjorie was born in 1932 to Orrin and Mary Fish in Cleveland. The family moved to Lakeside, Ohio where Marjorie graduated from Danbury High School and she collected an education degree at Bowling Green State University before embarking on a teaching career that took her to elementary schools in Catawba, Benton, Carroll, and Salem. In 1968, when Marjorie was 28, she read that book, The Interrupted Journey, and became obsessed with Betty's star map. You see, she was an amateur astronomer, And she couldn't stop from wondering if the star map drawn by Betty might represent some actual pattern of celestial objects that were visible from Earth. You see, she was an amateur astronomer and she couldn't stop from wondering if the star map drawn by Betty might represent some actual pattern of celestial objects that were visible from Earth. So it became her hobby to try and find a similar makeup of stars. Marjorie even paid a visit to Betty in the summer of 1969. Sadly, Barney had died earlier that year, but Betty welcomed her and told her all she remembered. She said the hypnotist told her to only draw what she remembered intuitively and not to pay any attention to what she was doing. Some have come to interpret it what she did as a phenomenon called automatic drawing. Marjorie decided to start with the assumption that one of the 15 stars on Betty's map must be Earth's sun. Then she studied thousands of vantage points using a database known as the Gleese Star Catalog. This exercise took more than three years. And finally... Margie found something that looked promising. She wrote a letter to Betty, dated October 7, 1972, and said, It looks like I won't get any sleep tonight. I'm higher than a kite. No booze, just pure joy. Elation, rather. What she had found was a view of stars that matched Betty's map, and it was tucked into a small, faint constellation known as Reticulum, In the southern sky, not even visible from the United States. Inside that constellation were two stars known as Zeta Reticuli, and Marjorie identified those stars, some 220 trillion miles away and barely visible to the unaided eye, as the possible home base of intelligent extraterrestrials. One thing that was particularly intriguing about Fish's map, three of the stars in the map she identified had not been cataloged back in 1961 when the hills were abducted. That means when Betty drew her map, no guide could have revealed this specific composition. Only by 1972 were there enough new discoveries to make identification possible. Marjorie sent her analysis to Webb, that Boston astronomer who initially interviewed with the Hills. And Webb thought she might have something there. So he sent her analysis to Terence Dickinson. He was the editor of a new popular and highly respected scientific magazine called Astronomy. Dickinson ran a story about it in the December 1974 issue, inviting debate, and that's when people stopped calling it the Hill incident and started calling it the Zeta Reticuli incident, because suddenly the spotlight had moved from Betty and Barney Hill to Marjorie Fish. The Astronomy Magazine editor did not endorse a view, but did invite comments and debate on the subject. For the next year, the opinion pages of Astronomy were filled with arguments for and against Marjorie Star map. Many were in her court. Dr. David Saunder, a respected statistician in his time, said mathematically it seemed unlikely that 15 dots on Betty's star map would ever be made to fit a random configuration in the sky. Others, though, said it was a complete fluke. Carl Sagan, the famed astronomer and the author of Contact, said it was complete coincidence. The debate continued for years. I found newspaper articles in the late 70s still discussing the map. It wasn't until the early 1990s when a satellite mission to measure the distances to more than a hundred thousand stars presented a map more accurately than ever before and those stars identified by Marjorie no longer matched Betty Hill's drawing. Marjorie herself reviewed the data that came from the satellite mission and determined that the binary stars within the pattern were too close together to support life. She issued a statement that she now felt that the correlation she had drawn, the one that had caused so much debate for so many years, was most unlikely. By the way, according to her obituary, somewhere along the line, Marjorie left teaching and ended up spending 20 years doing research for the US Department of Energy at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. At the end of her life, she returned to Oak Harbor, Ohio. She suffered from Alzheimer's and passed away on April 8, 2013 at the age of 80, leaving behind several nieces and nephews who recalled her love of art, the outdoors and camping. I didn't tell you that before. Margie was also quite an artist. She once created a bust that depicted an alien as described by the Hills. She gave it to Betty Hill. It was dubbed Junior and kept in a place of honor at Betty Hill's home until all of Betty Hill's notes, tapes, and other items were donated to the University of New Hampshire. As I noted earlier, Barney died way too young of a cerebral hemorrhage, on February 25, 1969, he was 46. Betty Hill died of cancer on October 17, 2004, at the age of 85, never having remarried. By the way, if you get to that part of New Hampshire, you'll find a historical marker at the site where the Hills believe they first encountered the UFO. It was placed there in 2011 by the New Hampshire Division of Historical Resources.
2: This is part of the program where we bring on an Ohio Mysteries listener to be an armchair detective.
5: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions— Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute
1: Culture and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
0: podcasts.
3: Well, joining us tonight, we have Paul Williams from North Olmstead, Ohio, and his daughter, Chloe. Hi guys. Hi. Hello. Chloe, how old are you? I'm 12. Twelve. Great. Hey, listen, why don't each of you take a moment and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
6: Well, I ride horses and compete in horse shows.
3: We actually just had a horse competition not too long ago down
4: in Medina, Ohio, um, where she did really well.
3: Thank you. That is so exciting. I have only been on a horse twice in my life. I was pretty young both times. How cool is that? We have a lot of fun. We enjoy it. That is great. And Dad, Paul, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, I live
4: uh, in the area as well. I sometimes work at a bar in uh, Avon Lake, Ohio. Where I will manage, or I'll bartend, or I'll just be there doing odd jobs.
3: Well, what do you guys think overall about the story of Betty and Barney Hill and their good friend Marjorie Fish? I'm curious as to where you're coming from personally. Do you believe in the possibility of UFOs? Um, Well, I
6: think it would be arrogant to say that there was no life on any other planets or because the solar system and Earth is so small. So there's probably some life out there somewhere else. But there is a lot of evidence supporting that this isn't true. I'd like to think that... This didn't happen.
3: My brother Tom, his favorite saying, if you ask him if he believes in UFOs, he says, I want to believe. And I think that probably fits me. You know, I haven't seen anything that's like slam dunk, I'm in, but I want to believe. How about you, Paul?
4: Uh, When I was younger, um, when I was Chloe's age, I would believe anything that flew in the sky was a UFO. But now that I've gotten older, I'm more of a skeptic these days. And I honestly believe they might uh had a couple drinks at that place they stopped at that restaurant they stopped at and had a little bit of a car accident. They were on a they were on hour six of a long drive and maybe just to get out of paying the insurance. I don't know, but I think they uh, they made that story up.
3: Do you think they they just completely made it up, or do you think something happened and they didn't know what it was and they just let the story get away from them? Hmm.
4: I think they let the story get away from them a little bit. I think that, uh, I, from what I've read, is that Betty was a real big fan of science fiction. The story that they told was awfully familiar to a 1953 53 movie that came out. So she would have been aware of if she was a big fan of, of science fiction.
3: She might've got a little in, too too inspired by that movie. Yeah. But it's kind of a funny situation because they were
6: a quite normal couple. hmm Because Betty was a social worker. Barney, I believe, worked for the postal office, right?
4: Yeah, and they were both members of the NAACP.
6: So I was thinking about it, and why would they want to create something to give them that fame? Or were they just searching for attention?
4: That's true, too. I mean, do you think that maybe they made up the story so they wouldn't get in trouble for wrecking the car? I don't,
3: I don't know. You know, it sounds to me when I read about them that Betty might have been more all in on the story than Barney and that Barney kind of had to be pulled along a little bit. Did you guys get that impression at all? I did. Because he originally,
4: didn't he say that what he saw was a type of plane from the 1940s?
6: I read an article on that he, where he records say that he said that. And he also was very skeptical of the fact that they saw, quote unquote, aliens. Yeah. And Betty was the one kind of felt like he was she, he was she was pushing him along to believe that what happened
3: happened. Yeah. He didn't seem initially to buy into her dreams at all either. Uh, I think at one point he called her dreams nonsense. (laughs) So, um, but oddly, that makes this story even a little bit more interesting to me because Barney did seem to come around after he started having that hypnosis. And so there's almost a, a genuineness from him like, okay, maybe I don't know what happened, but I can't dismiss it. Because now I have these, you know, sessions with this hypnotist that are revealing some interesting things. What do you guys think about hypnotism? Do you have a, a, an idea on that? Well, usually th- what they use
6: was medical hypnosis or hypnotism, but I'm not sure if I believe that it really works or... I mean, maybe it works for others, but I'm not what I'm
3: more skeptic on things like
4: that. Yeah, I'm definitely very skeptical on hypnotism.
3: Yeah, he was being treated for just kind of being a nervous guy, you know, kind of a a more of an emotional thing rather than the hypnotist saying, "Okay, we're going to bring out the UFO. It seemed to be something else and that the UFO part of it just kind of came out. But I don't know, part of me is like, why is he telling these very detailed stories about what happened to him when he was on the exam table? You know, where did that come from? You know, if he was kind of pushing against his wife a little, saying, oh, I don't remember all of that, and then being hesitant to try hypnosis, all of a sudden he's like, yeah, they— probed me they scraped my skin they you know peeked in my ears and mouth I mean there just seemed to be a lot of detail there what do you think what's going on I feel like that I, this
6: is just an maybe just an educated guess. but maybe he felt like they were in this too far to say that this wasn't real maybe he was too afraid to get the all those rumors that would be created about them and maybe they would lose their job or maybe they would get fired.
4: Or Do you think maybe he did it to support his wife?
3: That could be a possibility. That's probably a possibility. So let's jump over to Marjorie Fish. Okay. She's in, you know, near Port Clinton, Ohio. She's our girl. And the reason we did this story and she's, All in. She has listened to what these guys have had to say. She is buying it. And she says, you know what? I'm going to figure out where those stars are so we know where those aliens come from. Chloe, have you gone through an astronomy phase yet? Because every kid's got to go through a phase like that. Yeah, for a while there. (laughs) Yeah, we did astronomy for a while. So when you're looking up there at the sky and you're seeing all these stars, you can kind of you can kind of see where it might be really challenging to find 13 dots that are lined up perfectly with 13 dots on a paper, right? Yeah.
4: Yeah, that was really hard. i I don't know how she did it. I really don't. I give her a lot of props for being able to find all of that. It took her years. Years.
3: And then she said she found it.
4: I think that uh, she really wanted to believe her friend and support her friend and found something that resembled what she was looking for and said, hey, we got it.
3: Close enough. Hey, Chloe, did you ever see the movie Contact? I haven't. (gasps) Okay, Paul, you've got to get that movie. That's a good father-daughter night. (laughs) The movie Contact, that was Jodie Foster, and she's uh, an astronomer and a scientist, and she is she discovers a noise in the universe she's got to figure out what it is and it's it was actually written by Carl Sagan who weighed in on this story by the way with Marjorie Fish he said that what marjorie found was just a fluke that there was no way those those stars indicated, you know, alien presence, but you've got to go see that. You've got to have your dad show you that movie. I think you would love it, especially because it's also about, Paul, have you seen it? Yes, I've seen it. So there's a it's all about a father-daughter relationship. It's it really is. sweet. So you got to watch that together. Well, so Marjorie when she died, she did apparently died after saying that she looked at some new star maps, some new things that we learn and decided that nah, that she had gotten it wrong. What do you think? I, that would that really be hard for her after all those years to be able to just admit that maybe it was wrong all that time
6: yeah maybe she didn't want to pass away without any any regrets or
4: that's what it feels like to me
6: and it's pretty big to make a mistake that big after devoting almost your entire life to that story and then just saying it's not real after believing in it for so many years so that was probably really hard
3: so, Marjorie, if nothing else, you taught us a very important lesson there. No matter how big the flub is, just own up to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, have you guys ever been to New Hampshire before? No. I haven't. No. All right. Well, if you ever get it on your list, uh, I hear they got a historical marker out there. You'll have to go and uh, check it out.
4: Yeah, we actually looked at a picture of it. It's a the classic, you know, historical marker. But would definitely be neat to go check it It out. It holds
6: a pretty big story behind it.
4: It does.
6: (laughs) I feel like whether or whether or not the story was true or fake of Betty and Barney, that story, so many movies were created off of that. That's how almost all of the science fiction movies were created after that story. They took inspiration from that. So, I mean, whether it was true or not, it did do something
3: to change the world you're right that is a true statement they certainly left their mark on the world whether what they had to say was true or not they left more of a mark than most of us will leave that's for true sure. yeah i love that paul you have a really smart daughter did I'll she sing. get that from you no <laughs> she got that from <laughs>
4: Now it's important. She'll be able to hear it forever.
3: Thank you both for joining us.
2: Thank, Thank you, you very, very much.
3: much.
2: That's it for tonight, listeners. For
3: photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, Ohio And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. So picnic day is an experimental art rock band from Youngstown made up of Dave Tamulonis, Chauncey Hay, and Adam Tellus. I think I got those names right. The band just finished a project to record 100 songs in 100 days during the COVID-19 quarantine from March to June of this year. I know I said they were from Youngstown, but actually one of them now lives in Bowling Green and another in Erie. So they had to do this all remotely and they ended up with 10 different albums. They have an anything goes approach to songwriting, which I think you'll see is evident if you go to their Bandcamp page and start clicking on their songs. They said it was a fun project and gave them and their fans some much needed respite from the stress of the pandemic. Anyway, in addition to Bandcamp, you can go find them on Spotify, Apple Music and Instagram. Well,
2: let's have another listen to Megadeth is absolutely my favorite band by Picnic Day. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
1: Nevertheless, check out lots of chewing gum Temporary employment Print the spice sauce bold meant to cuss at the envelope, check curb studio track, make a point, grab my glasses, move to make it the eye up at eight, check your cardboard, you're outside, gaggy pants with no label, learn from making the spice sauce, Megadeth is absolutely my favorite band, get to the point, shave off your scalp, I'll have the egg Competitive, it's the last verse of it all. I cracked the cleaner, Murphy's oil soap. I'm outside, come catch me by. Come catch me by.